mindfulness mode. Tell people not to be afraid of death, and so many people are. Welcome to the show, Mindful Tribe. I want to start by just mentioning, you've probably heard me talking in the last few episodes about a product that I really believe in. It's called Kachaba, and it's a meal replacement. It's simple to mix with cold water and, and drink it. It comes in different flavors, and it's so nutritious and healthy for you. And it's really a great product that I have been enjoying. What I'm um, disappointed about is the fact that on the last two episodes, or maybe three or four, I mentioned about this product. I told you to go to kachaba.com slash mindfulness. Well, it turns out that that link didn't work because the word mindfulness was misspelled. And I apologize for that. It was misspelled with two L's. So you can go there, put the two L's in it and see if you get the 10% off. And I'm sure you will. That's K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com. We're going to change that and make sure mindfulness is spelled properly. Kachava.com slash mindfulness and get 10% off on your first order. I hope you like it, Mindful Tribe. Okay, let's get going with the show. Mindful Tribe, I'm here today with a health and wellness expert. Throughout her 30-year career, she's focused on supporting thousands of people from every walk of life to make realistic, meaningful choices for lifelong health. As a 19-year-old cadet in the U.S. Air Force Academy, she went through a transformative NDE, near-death experience. Her pursuit of improving her own health led her to inspire others to reach emotional, energetic, and spiritual well-being. We're here today with Nicole Kerr. Nicole, are you in mindfulness mode? Absolutely. Been prepping for it all morning. <laughs> That's great. And I've been so excited to uh, talk to you because I know you have quite a story. But before we get into that story, tell us, what does mindfulness mean to you? Um, what it means to me is awareness. Okay. And it means being thoughtful and kind. And to be in awareness, you have to be into your prefrontal cortex. You can't be in the back of the amygdala with the fight flight fear syndrome, right? So it takes a lot of our programming is unconscious. So it takes a lot to start working through that and be aware of a lot of patterns and belief systems that are no longer working for you that, you know, you become mindful, oh, this is, this is sabotaging me now. So that's how I would define it. Well, Nicole, I know you have a very compelling story, and I'm wondering if you would, for our listeners, start at when you were 19 year old, 19 years old. Where did you go? What did you do? Tell us your story. Okay. Well, my story, first of all, is coming out. I'm so excited. It's taken me almost two decades to write it, and it's called You Are Deathless. Um, and a near-death experience taught me how to fully live and to not fear death. So... It started um, as a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, and I went in as the sixth class of women. So there, that was a time where they were going through transition, and it was it was difficult. There was a lot of men there that did not want women in, admitted into our military academy. So I was going in at a really hard time. But the beginning of my sophomore year. I, we were at a um, squadron, like the beginning of the year, celebrating it, what all we were going to be doing. 
and they had allowed alcohol at the event. And so I didn't get there till later in the afternoon and wound up asking a cadet that was higher ranked than me that had a car for a ride home. And we were the last to leave. And he wanted to stop at a bar and have another drink. And I was like, okay, because I grew up in the South where my dad was strictly forbade alcohol, had an alcoholic father. So I actually had a beer, two beers there. And that was all I had had to drink. And he had more. And then um, I do remember the bartender asking him if he was okay to drive. And he said, yes. And then we, we stopped to look at the mountains. And I remember being hypersensitive to being back at the academy by 735 because we had a curfew. And if we didn't make the curfew, then we got in trouble. And I was determined not to start the year in trouble. And we never made it back to the academy. Um, we were in a Corvette convertible. And I, um, the you know, the last thing I remember was pulling out onto the curb. Um, and then I woke up in the hospital. Um, the next day, I was unconscious for at least 12 hours. Um, I was declared dead at the scene of the accident. Um, if it wasn't for uh, a paramedic named uh, John Hartling taking a second look and telling the bystanders no, I determined you know, what I make the call on life and death, um, I definitely would have bled out, but I suffered um, uh, many injuries. I severed my right wrist. I, uh, my foot was amputated. I, I had broken my pelvis on both sides. I had a really bad road burn from skidding along um, that took off uh, part, part of my cheek. And, you know, you don't think about things like that, you know, but yeah. the good news was my brain pretty much was intact. I did have what is now defined as a traumatic brain injury. But back then in 83, we weren't, medicine wasn't, you know, describing it as that. So they had just gotten these mass pants on their bus and put them on me. And what that does is it forces all the blood up to your heart. So they got a blood pressure of 60 over zero. And the only way John knew I was alive was doing this thing called a sternal knuckle press, which they do. It's very painful. And my right pupil dilated. That was the only sign of life he got out of me. So they got me to the nearest community hospital, did not know I was a cadet because we were in city clothes. And um, then um, that begins my story of four months in the hospital, seven weeks in ICU, six major operations, two code blues, um, and then 20 years later, my memory actually comes back of what exactly happened, why we crashed, going over to the other side, what was my lesson on the other side, and why I, I did come back, because I really tried hard not to come back. You know, oh, I, I didn't wow. want to come back. When, when I went on to the other side, I didn't want to come back. And then to have two code blues, you know, I just... I knew it was going to be painful and I knew there's going to be a lot of suffering involved. And um, when 20 years later, I was working at the CDC Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta and I went to Starbucks and just an ordinary day. And here I was drinking a cup of coffee on my way to work. And I remembered exactly how I sat in the car. That wow. Was the it just suddenly came car. back to you just like that. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And now I know how I sliced my foot off you on do. my left side. 
Yeah. So you know how you in a Corvette, you put one up, foot up on the dashboard and the other one, you kind of pull you, you pull it over your knee. So you have like a triangle there. OK. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. How you're sitting one leg up on the dashboard and the other's kind of folded and you're kind yeah. of leaning back. That's what happened. So I, oh. when we hit the boulder, my body went butt up through the, the um, windshield. Cut okay. my foot, cut a fourth degree laceration between my anal and sphincter muscle, um, cut a huge hole out of the inside of my uh, right leg that they had to grab back. So it cut up all of that, messed all of that up, but it saved my spine and my brain for the most part. So um, it was bad. It was really bad. And they didn't think I would make it. And several times I had these near death moments through that especially the seven weeks in icu so didn't remember a thing except bright white lights that's all i ever remembered for 20 years that's incredible that after 20 years some of this came back so the idea of how you were sitting came back at that moment and then did other parts of it come back come back at other times yes i got so freaked out with that instead of going to work i drove to my chiropractor body worker and of course, he had no openings that day. And I just said, I don't care. I'm going to sit here until he can fit me in. So I sat in his waiting room all day till he could fit me in because I was just so freaked out by that. And he told me that's what repressed memories were coming back and that I was OK. But he helped guide me through a series to where I was able to when I was pulled up in an upward direction, I could look down and see my body in a ditch and see it was lifeless, you know, and, right. and then he, then my body just wouldn't go anywhere. And he said, you need to go home, go lay down. The rest of the memory will come. And it did. And, um, and then since then my body has gotten stronger and I've had more memories come back. So that's why it's taken me so long to write this book. You know, a lot of people can write something mm -hmm. a year after it happens. But my story is just really different because the other thing I had to deal with was a very religious Christian family who um, me coming back, I was ba basically in an infant position. You know, I couldn't go to the bathroom on my own. They didn't think I would walk again. Um, it was just I was very dependent on my parents care to be able to make it to the next level. I just, at a time in your life, you're supposed to be independent, right? And carefree. Of out on your own. So here I'm out, you know, going to have fun and boom, did I get in trouble? And my dad, I talk about this in the book, my dad had his own 10 commandments because he was a Marine mm -hmm. and um, he pretty much, and this is where we get into, you know, the mindfulness is being blamed for breaking his rules. So I deserved it, you know, and that, that mindset and, um, disappointing you know uh my father and my mother and um it just was really really difficult to let go of that because to this day he is still not apologized and wow. then the epilogue part is something that happened two months ago and my roommate at that time she quit the air force academy in December. Okay. I left to come home to Mississippi to continue rehab and she quit. Okay. She loved the Academy. I had not talked to her in 38 years and her and two of the other roommates. And I got on a zoom call just probably six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Bruce, 
she has blamed herself for the wreck the entire time. Oh my gosh. She, I had asked her for a ride back and we already agreed on this and she told me she would, but when it came time to go, the upperclassman that she was uh, going with was drunk. So she was driving his car and she had a crush on him and she she just said, no, there's one other guy left over there. And I said, but he's been drinking. And she said, oh, that's okay. They've all been drinking. You'll be okay. You'll get back. Okay. And I didn't. So she could not live with herself. So she quit and she lives, you know, she never married. She just, and to hear her blame herself because she said no to me and how our lives would have been so different if she would have just said, yes, get in the car. Right. I, I never knew that. And she thought I did remember it. And my memory of that never came back until that moment she said it. So I know that's another reason because we blame a lot of us blame ourselves for stuff that isn't ours. And we live with that guilt and we don't get to live our life fully. That is so true. And how do we get to the point where we don't let that happen? Even if maybe we've been doing it for years, but how do we make the switch? It's taken me almost 40 years. I feel like the, was it the Israelis, Israelites that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? You know, it's, it's taken me almost 40 years to figure this out because I was very much in my head. I was very much in an intellect person. I was not a very emotional person. Uh, I think Americans, I don't know about Canadians, but we're very illiterate when it comes to emotions. We're very much into bad, mad, sad, glad. That's about mm -hmm. it. That's all we feel. And in the military, you don't even get to feel those. It's yes or no. It's black and white, you know? Yeah. And I understand that, but you need to be able to express your emotions or you're going to wind up having physical um, symptoms. And that's what happened to me, you know, is I just blocked it out of my mind. I blocked the near-death experience. I didn't have any support around me that would allow it to come up and be supported. Um, and, you know, I shared with my father recently, we don't have a relationship, but we were discussing preparations for death and stuff like that. And, uh, and I told him, I, I let him hear what my roommate said. And I knew what his answer would be before he even said it. He said, well, then you still made a bad decision and you should have walked back to the Air Force Academy. You know, so there's no, oh there's no, you know, he can't take responsibility. He's a wow. narcissist. And wow. to have to really go, you wanted me to walk at 730. It's just irrational, you know, it is. but it also doesn't allow him to have to take responsibility and go, I screwed up, you know? Right. right. Uh, so that's been really hard for me to work on letting go of getting my parents approval because after that wreck, I lost their approval and I was a people pleaser growing up here in the South. It's sweet tea and people pleasing. And it's really hard to get out of that mindset until you realize you don't really get a reward from it. At the end of the day, it's like you're a bug that got stomped on. You didn't get what you really wanted, you know, right. and that's yes. an identity that many of us, especially women hold on to that we need to let go of because it sabotages us from getting what we really want. Wow. Wow. Tough times. It must be so difficult to have lived with your, your parents not giving you 
the acceptance and the approval. And the the subtitle of your book is How a Near-Death Experience Taught Me How to Live Life Fully and Not Fear Death. So tell us some insight into how we can live our life without fearing death, because I think secretly so many of us do. Yeah. Well, the first thing is death was is actually beautiful. You know, there was there's nothing uh, negative with it. It is so peaceful. And you, you know, I was led up with a guide. It is, um, I don't even have the right words for it because it's such an experience of, oh my gosh, this is beyond brilliance. Um, there are colors that you see that don't even exist on earth. You do have guides, angels that escort you to the other side. You're not alone. I know people fear being alone when they die, but I think it's on the human person still alive, not the person that actually died that's actually worried about the being alone piece. Um, because you're never alone when you're connected. And we always are connected because we're always in eternal spark of God. God is within all of us. And that was the biggest lesson I learned was God is not this um, persona that we were raised with in the South, uh, in, in the Baptist church, the Lutheran church, you know, that some white haired bearded guy that was keeping score up in heaven. And, you know, you weren't going to get through if you did these, these rules, the rules just kept going and going and going and you were going to hell. There was a place called hell that you were going to. That's all man-made, you know, Uh, and it's still being um, told to people. And what it does is just puts them in immediate fear. So, you know, you're going to fear death if you screw up, but you can't come into this life as a human and not screw up. So you're in a catch 22 situation, right? And then you get, you know, for me, God became this bending machine. You know, if I put in the right behavior, then I should get, you know, and push Coca-Cola, then a Coke should come out. Well, in my case, if Mountain Dew came out, then I did something wrong. My input was wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Just like, prayer. You're taught to pray a certain way. And you think about it, it's on your knees with your bed, with your hands like this, you know, in the prayer position. Otherwise, if you didn't get what you wanted, you must not have prayed exactly right, you know? And I think that's the journey with mindfulness is, you know, we were all taught meditation in a certain way a long time ago. You're supposed to sit in the lotus position. You're supposed to be quiet. Some people, they do their fingers. And, you know, it's like, well, my head is spinning with all these thoughts of what I got to do and, you know, this, that and the other. So you weren't really connecting because most people are disconnected from their head and their body, their emotional body, embodiment. And we learn to, to feel our emotions in our head. I know I'm angry at you, Bruce, because you did this, that and the other. But the anger never gets in the body because you're told it's not you know, as a kid, don't you get angry at me or, you know, definitely don't get angry at God or your mother, you know? So, uh, (laughs) you know, we get, we get these belief systems. And so what are you going to do with all that anger? Well, that's sitting right in your liver, you know, stays there, uh, doesn't it? Yeah. So you've got to be in alignment in my understanding to really experience meditation fully, your head, your body, your heart, 
your mind, all of that has to be one. And if you cut off your mind from your body, well, you're not going to get to that place where you really can transform or transcend. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I want to ask you, how long did it take you to write this book? And was this a transformative experience for you, a therapeutic experience? Yes, it actually was. Now that I look back on it, I was writing the book for myself to heal. And um, I started with notes in 2009 with my writing prompts, you know, and then I would just put them away. And then I hired a coach and then I thought, okay, I did writer's workshops, you know, and I thought, okay, this is what I want to say, but I could never get the ending right. You know, what is Mm -hmm. the ending here? And then um, I, so that's been 13 years. I've been working on it. And then the last two, when I moved to New Bern um, from Hawaii uh, during the pandemic, uh, since I was more isolated, it all started coming together. My emotions, my alignment, my, you know, I started doing energy work, which we all are. We are all energy. And so I started incorporating that into my meditation and it's all made a tremendous difference. And I'm still human. You know, I want people to understand you're still you're not going to be in this state all the time because you're you're a human and you're not meant to be, you know, and we're all here to keep learning. And I'm still learning on the journey, but I feel like I have enough of experience to write this and let people know based on the 10 common lessons of the near death experience that science says the first one is you don't die. You know, they're all positive. And that is what I'm trying to create. I even transformed what I call myself now. I'm a eternity, let me get this straight, eternality advocate. And, And that word is, it's the quality or state of being eternal. It has no end. And we always say at the end of the prayers growing up where I was, world without end, you know, Mm -hmm. amen, you know, so it's everlasting. We are, our souls are everlasting. So I want people to know that, you know, that they, their physical form, of course, dies, but their soul has a long, long trajectory. And that light goes on and on and on and keeps, and keeps um, living. Yeah. Well, you've always been passionate about health and eating properly and and being the best healthy person we can be. Isn't that true? And like that's so exciting because when we talk about mindfulness, it's also about body health as well, right? You know, I started it when I was a dietitian. I worked with eating disorders because I put in the book that I I never got help with the emotional part of my rack. My parents thought, well, you can walk, you can function that way. Physically, you're good to go. And my mother told the doctor that Jesus and God were the psychiatrist, which I needed help. And so I developed compulsive, back then it was called compulsive eating. And now it's binge eating disorder. And so I had no idea why. So I went into nutrition, became a dietitian, of course, to fix myself. And uh, that didn't work. In fact, I lived with that Um, disorder for 20 years from 20 to 40. I didn't get married till I was 40. And when I got married, then it started to shift. Um, And I wasn't binging anymore. 
And I think a lot of that was, I was so vulnerable, you know, easily hurt and harmed. And I just used the food to just push down the pain. You know, it really Mm -hmm. was that. But once I became a dietitian, of course, that's the field that I chose was eating disorders and trying to help them. And we did a lot of mindful eating. And it really is hard to slow down your chewing you know, and only eat maybe half your plate in 15 minutes and then take the other 15 minutes and eat the rest of it. You know, we're, we're fast food, everything, you know, it's just like you get that hamburger and man, you're eating at the red light. And then you look down and you're like, Oh my God, I just ate the whole hamburger. <laughs> it's gone. Go to green. So, you know, it's about slowing yourself down in all areas to be yes. mindful. And food is a huge one for us because we do it absentmindedly most of the time. We're watching TV. You know, if you're having a conversation with someone you don't enjoy, you wind up eating more of the food on the table than you would have normally because it's not enjoyable. Or if, you know, and especially watching violent movies as you're eating, it impedes your digestion. It really does. Because those emotions coming off and the energy coming off that screen is not sitting well with you. And what are your thoughts on fasting and intermittent fasting? Do you feel that's a a good way to help decrease the amount of food that's going into your body? Uh, It depends on someone if they have an eating disorder, because the more you restrict yourself, the more you will binge. Does that mm. make sense? Restricting, yeah. restricting your fat intake, when you decide to let yourself have some, you're going to be going to Haagen-Dazs and, you know, full fat, everything, right? So you're yeah. going from one extreme to the other. Um, and I think the other thing, I don't know, when you grew up maybe in the 60s, does that yeah. sound about right? Yeah, that's okay. about right. My mother had a thing, a rule is, once dinner was was done, the kitchen was closed, okay? And dinner was early. Dinner was 5.30, 6 o'clock p.m., okay? So you didn't get anything until breakfast the next morning around 7. So we actually were doing intermittent fasting way back in the 60s just by their rules, okay? Because yeah. that's a good 13 hours. So when you look back then, we all were a lot thinner. <laughs> yes, and plus, we were outside and running around and doing all those yeah, things, too, yeah. weren't we? Yeah, the screen time, you know, and I call that digital obesity. It's yeah. just you're sitting so much. And it is so hard to get children away from the screens and engage them in something outdoors. Um, it is oh, yeah. very difficult to do that once once that dopamine hits. It sure is. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. Well, it's a fascinating story that you have. And and the book, and I want to repeat, Mindful Tribe, the name of the book, You Are Deathless. You Are Deathless by Nicole Kerr. And you can check out her website, NicoleKerr.com. There's the cover. Yeah. So check out this book. And Nicole, I always ask a question about bullying on my show uh, because I've worked in the field of bullying prevention for over 10 years and and find that there's a, a relationship between that and mindfulness. Do you have a story you can share where maybe there was some bullying going on and maybe mindfulness would have made a difference? Yeah. And it actually was pretty recently with, with my parents. Um, uh, my, I got sick again about eight years ago and I had my 
parents, we were going on a, a overdue, uh, when I say honeymoon, and I invited my parents to come stay in Hawaii at our home. And um, I got really sick. And my mother told me the reason I got sick was because I had a Buddha in the house. Oh and yeah, and she told me that, you know, I looked anorexic, I wasn't beautiful anymore, and that I'm doing something to make myself sick. And she wanted to know if I was going to church. And I said, No, I go to church of the beach. And I love meditating on my walks on the beach and in the ocean. And, um, and she said, Well, that's, that's, you're not a Christian now. And my heart just sank because here she is this right ultra religious lady, you know, doing what Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. So she got up from the table and left me there. And I looked at my dad and I said, dad, do you believe her? And he said, well, you've looked better, you know, and, uh, and that was it. And my husband didn't know about that conversation until I had a, a panic attack and had to go in the hospital for that. And then they left. And that was, I finally got the courage to separate from my parents. You know, um, unfortunately, it took me a long time because I was still trying to get from them what they couldn't give me. And it just, when it's your parents, dang it, you know, yeah, you just, I know we, we really, we really do want it. And, uh, yeah. and we'll suffer greatly trying to get something from them that they can't give us first. It really is. Absolutely. We will. And what's your relationship with Christianity now after all these years? You know, uh, the way I see it is Jesus Christ is, um, uh, what do I want to say? A mentor. He's a role model and he is a way shower the way he lived his life. And um, I have a problem with a lot of religions. And especially now, it was not only the Roman Catholic sexually abusing, now it's the Southern Baptists that have come out with their sexual abuse claim, the claim against them. And now it's a Mormon uh, yeah. thing in uh, Arizona they've been abusing, you know, and all of this hypocrisy. I'm just going to state it as hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing the other and how it has hurt people and wounded them in such traumatic ways that right now uh, I'm just, I don't get caught up in that. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Nicole, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first question is this, who is one person that has been a powerful mindfulness uh, example in your life? My husband, Paul. Wonderful. Wonderful. My next question is about emotions. And I just want to know how you deal with your emotions differently as a result of mindfulness. Um, I learned a technique called neuroemotional technique, NET, which um, I became certified in. And then if I am not processing an emotion, I'm a somatic processor. So my body lets me know I'll either belch or I usually will get a, a headache, you know, and then I will work through, oh, what was it? And it's usually one that's like shame, uh, a difficult one that I don't want to feel. And then I go, oh, it's triggering something from the past. And I go back and I figure out what that is. So I can do that now for myself. Very, very interesting. Neuro, emotional. And what does the T stand for? Technique. Technique. 
Yeah, right. it's been around about 35 years. The chiropractor, the walkers out of California developed it. Very interesting. Wow. I want to talk about breathing. Do you have any comments about breathing and how it can help us? Oh, yes, it will keep you alive. <laughs> <laughs> you have got to breathe, Bruce. I woke up from one operation and they told me right before it was an emergency one where they had to cut me all the way open. And they said, you will probably wake up with a ventilator, you know, being um, being on a ventilator, respirator. And the first thing you're going to notice is you're going to instinctively pull it out. So your hands are going to be tied down. OK, so don't pull it out. And I had to wait. I don't know. I Two days, I think I was on that thing. I looked at the they finally covered the clock up because I just kept looking at the clock because I couldn't say anything. I had to do yes and no through eye motions. But I had to learn to force myself to breathe with the machine. OK, and so breathing, I am all about it. When you have a panic attack, anxiety about it's about getting your breath. OK, and getting getting that under control. But yes, breathing exercises, deep breathing, all forms of breathing. And don't stay in this shallow. Get it down to the belly. Nicole, it's, it's, it's number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Breathing is so important, isn't it? And we we don't even think about it a lot of the time. And it can prevent some of these panic attacks and it can prevent anxiety. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a great thing to focus on. That's for sure. Now, your book, You Are Deathless, you know, such such a, a story, a powerful story, and so much to learn from your book. But I want to ask you, are there any other books that you would recommend that are related to mindfulness? You know, I, I guess my whole career with mindfulness has evolved. You know, it kind of started back in the day with uh, Wayne Dyer and, and um, that whole generation of spiritual teachers. Um, but The Wisdom of Florence Shen, I really appreciated her books way back then. And, um, and then today, you know, I will listen to different, uh, the shift network will have interviews. And in the middle of that, a person may say, okay, I'm gonna do a meditation. So you can get a free meditation that way, you know, um, insight timer is a great app. There's thousands, and you can select what resonates with you or who resonates with you whose voice does. But, you know, sometimes people need a guide through the meditation. Some people don't, you know, so we're all just like with food. We're all unique with that. But you've got to quiet yourself. And we're in such a society with inform information. You got to cut some of that out. You got to cut the media. You got to cut some of the negative toxicity people um, because to get inspired, you need some quiet or music. Yeah, you really do. And and my next question was going to be about the app, and you've already answered that with Insight Timer. So I'll put all of this into our show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. But I want to ask you this, Nicole. If someone were listening right now today and they were thinking, wow, it sounds like Nicole has a lot of the answers. It sounds like she could really help me. What would your words of advice, your words of wisdom be to that person if they were going through a tough time right now? I will tell you that um, I still go through rough times. You know, what I came through, I, I still experience it. I am human, okay? There's not a 
I have all the answers. In fact, let me tell you, nobody has all the answers. That's why I didn't want to write a book, the seven steps to this or the three steps to whatever. What I was told on the other side was to tell people not to be afraid of death. And so many people are that they forget to live. So I hope my book is effective in putting the positives out there about death because we as a society have a more gloom and doom attitude about it. And that just shouldn't be because it's not the truth. Yeah. Well, this is a wonderful thing that you're doing, sharing the message that we should not fear death. That's a, a wonderful message to share. And, and I thank you for writing the book and sharing this with the world. And thank you for being on Mindfulness Mode, Nicole. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure for me. I'm so glad. Me too. So all the best to you. Have a great rest of your day. Bye now. Okay. And I will tell you, you can get the free first chapter if you go to my website. So that'll, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. And the website, of course, NicoleKerr.com, N-I-C-O-L-E-K-E-R-R, NicoleKerr.com. So thanks again for being on the show, Nicole. Thank you, Bruce. You have a lovely day. I will. Bye now. Bye. Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Nicole Kerr. So, you know, she gave us a lot of thoughts and ideas and and ways to look at life differently. So just take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.